This is an ABC podcast. Hilary Harper here. Hello. So lovely to be back with you in the flesh. Big question to kick off with. Are you a sports fan? It can be quite a loaded question in this country. We're awash with TV coverage, ads on buses, not to mention community level sport. But what turns people into fans? It's an interesting combo of factors, it turns out, and part of it is storytelling. That's right in our wheelhouse here on Life Matters, coming to you from Wurundjeri country. Summer is peak season for cricket and tennis. If you're not a big sport fan, that can be a bit challenging. But what determines whether someone does or doesn't get interested in sport? Perhaps a glossy documentary. You step on that court, time stops. Your heart starts beating faster. The hardest thing in sports is expectation. We've been blessed with an era of greatness. Roger, Rafa, Serena, Novak. Who will take their place? That is from the new Netflix tennis docuseries Breakpoint. It aired just in time for the Australian Open, aiming to net new fans. Then there's The Test on Amazon Prime. That's angling for cricket newbies ahead of the One Day International. And they both come after a series called Drive to Survive. That's brought lots of new fans to Formula One racing. Big characters, behind-the-scenes access, dramatic storytelling. It's a lot like kids' weekend soccer, really. What do you love about the sports you follow? And how did you convert or maybe sell it to a non-fan? What is it about the sport you love that drew you in? And how would you sell it to me, for example, or someone else who's not that interested in sport? Barrett Sundaresan is a journalist, commentator, author and all-round cricket nut. You can catch him at Crick Buzz and SEN Radio. Barat, sorry. Barat, welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me, Hilary. It's a pleasure. He's you got the uh, the cricket side of things sorted, so that's very exciting for us. And Dr. Adam Carg is with us too. He's an associate professor studying sports marketing and fan culture at Swinburne University. Adam, great to have you with us. Good to be here. Uh, Barat, what are you following at the moment? Any favourite codes? Oh, look, um, cricket pays my bills, Hillary, so uh, I have to uh, stick my neck out and say cricket's always been my sport of choice. It has been uh, uh, my job as well for the last 15 years, but uh, I'm on a little little bit of a break and cricket never sleeps, as you know, so it's just a week off before I head to India. The test summer's just finished in Australia and Australia headed to India next, so that's where I'm going, but I am making up for the space in between by by watching the tennis and uh, watching these documentaries that he just mentioned. Well, ha- let's start with the cricket. How did that become your thing? How did you become so welded to that as, as a passion? Uh, look, growing up in India, everyone plays cricket. Cricket's around you all the time. Your father's watching cricket, your brother's watching cricket. Uh, and then it, it kind of just becomes a, an extension of life itself. I mean, you ask any Indian kid, I guess it's changed now, but uh, kids who grew up in the 80s and the 90s, uh, their first memory would be a game of cricket that they watched on, on television. Uh, it was for me, I think the 92 World Cup, which happened in Australia, by the way, uh, was a f- was my real first memory of life, if you ask me what I remember from that time. So, uh, and sorry, go on. Yep. Yeah, no, and it was also like an opening to, to, to the world. Like, you know, we were so far away from what Australia was like, the blue skies and listening to Richie Benno and Bill Laurie and Tony Gregg tell us what this world far, far away from us was like. 
kind of kind of connected you with, and it went beyond sport itself. Well, exactly. I, I remember Richie Benno as the soundtrack to my summer as well. That's that's a part of my childhood. But I mean, the things you've mentioned are kind of partly accidental. It sounds like you know it was there in the background. It was your family. It was the culture. What about things like drama and strategy and compelling characters? Do they play a part for you? Do you think? Oh, I mean, it's the greatest form of theatre, any sport, because it kind of deals with every raw emotion there is, uh, right? There's failure, there's success, there's joy, there's sorrow, there's disappointment, there's anger, there's frustration, there's just unbridled delight. Uh, and, and all that happens in, in real time. Uh, it, you know it's not rehearsed. You know it's not scripted. Uh, and that's what draws you in, and that's what... Like, you know, and we are dramatic people in India, most of us. So uh, we were drawn to it even more because it's unlike a sport like soccer or, or footy, which I have grown to love since I moved here, uh, which happens in a shorter period of time. In, in cricket, you have the whole day and it plays out slowly, the ebbs and flows. So I think that aspect of it is what drew me in. And that's what I've focused on as well as a journalist in the last few years, the storytelling part of it. Well, I love that you've used the phrase unbridled delight in connection with cricket because that's a new one for me. <laughs> but I'm really interested to hear what our listeners have to say about this. Is there a sport that, that brings you that unbridled joy? And what is it about that? What made you get interested in that? Was it just an accident of, of family and, and circumstance and community? Or was it something that spoke to you about that particular sport. You've been hearing from Bharat Sundaresan, who's a, a journalist predominantly in the cricket, as you hear cricket is a real passion, and Dr Adam Karg, who's an associate professor studying sports, marketing and fan culture, which is going to be of huge interest to us today. Adam, do you uh, do you have sports of your own as, in a non-professional capacity that you follow? Yeah, just about everything, to be honest. It's <laughs> okay. probably harder to find sports I'm, I'm not interested than those that I am. So, yeah, and, and that's been the, the case for a long time. So, um, yeah, growing up soccer, was the number one sport for me. But I think over the last decade, particularly, um, interest in sort of building a calendar of sports, I guess, year round. So for me, Formula One has become a really big part of what I do on a Sunday night and, and part of my rituals on a Sunday. Um, the NFL and college football in America has been something I've become increasingly more interested in as I've travelled there and as I've watched some of the, the documentaries and things that we'll no doubt talk about here as well. So yeah, for me, it's um, a, a really large mix of international and local sport and, and much more international sport now, as much as anything because of the accessibility. That's become a really big part of why people consumption habits are changing our accessibility both in sort of short form highlights and things like that through Instagram and, and social media platforms but also the accessibility through being able to live stream through through KO and through a whole range of direct NBA NFL Premier League, whatever it might be, the accessibility to sport is one of the big things that's a lot different to what it was 10, 15 years ago. My kids taught me about KO. Mum, we want to watch the highlights from the weekends. <laughs> okay, here's the thing. You show me how to navigate and it's working very well. Um, so what drew you to sports in the first place, Adam? Because with your calendar of events, it sounds a little bit like an addiction, like I can't have January without anything, you know. Yeah, it's it's a bit, it's probably a bit like that. I think my family probably probably support that as well and I think I, I see it with my, my children as well now and the way that they they're, they're picking up and developing interest in certain sports and the way that they ask questions and the way that they, they follow players or teams and things like that as well. And that's a big part of how, how fandom develops. Essentially, we, we start from entertainment and pleasure and a hedonic experience. Um, often it is a social connection or a family connection that kicks that off. And then as we, as we develop, if we develop and as we develop deeper levels of connection, it's very much about the cognitive and the learning stages applied to really anything, if it's music, sport, theatre, whatever it might be. But with sport, we 
we see, and again, the documentaries and things play a really important part in this, um, is really developing, a, you know, learning more about the sport and learning more about the strategies. So things like the Tour de France for me are a really interesting one each year because it's not until people really start to understand the strategy behind the race that people are actually working in teams, that, that individual cyclists have different roles and some of them have no chance ever to win the race. They start, they'll cycle for three weeks, they have no chance of winning or finishing in the top 100. That's not their role. Once that strategy is sort of unpacked, people watch the sport, they follow the sport differently and they consume it differently because of that. Well, and that's really interesting because it's quite different from the narrative structure of a lot of other uh, competitive events, you know, and we're used to a narrative structure in the West in particular of like individualistic achievement, you know, this one winner thing against all odds, blah, blah, blah. Barat, is that an interesting thing as a sports writer to go, okay, I'm writing about a team rather than an individual? Do you have to kind of shift the narrative focus? Uh, yes and no, Hilary, because even in a team sport, at the end of the day, you're right, still writing about individuals, right? Like take cricket or soccer or even footy, uh, where, yes, it's it's the overall team. And you, you talk about relationships within the team as well, in the dressing room, on the field, what plays out. But at the end of the day, you're still writing about individuals. Certain days you focus on just one individual. Someone makes 100, someone kicks many goals, scores a hat-trick. You focus on them. But there are other days when it's it's more about uh, the team environment. But again, you're still tapping back into those, those those relationships, those connections between those people. And what I've always said is, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the whole uh, era of writing reports is long gone. What you're writing is a story of the day. And what I mean by the story of the day is, you kind of transport the reader to the to to what's happening i mean you kind of tell them what the place smells like what the setting was like and everything else and that kind of is what uh, the storytelling behind sport uh, is and more and more so with uh, like adam said like everything's on on tv everything is on digital streaming so as a journalist you need to go beyond you can't just be writing about or talking about what just happened well, like what like you need to go behind that the the story behind that and that's why these documentaries kind of help us out uh, now people have a connection with a pat cummins or a nick Kyrgios behind what what they do on the field or what they see them do on the field um i think so there is a distinction between how you write about team sport and individual sport for sure but it kind of comes back to people people connection for me Indeed. Well, and that's what I'm keen to hear from you about today. If you're listening, whether you are a dyed-in-the-wool sports fan and have to really look back through the years to work out what first drew you to things, or whether it's more of a recent conversion, very fascinated to hear what was the key that kind of unlocked that sport for you. A couple of texts on this. What an interest in sport mainly means today is watching it, not participating in it. There's a lot of commercial interest in increasing spectators, but very little in, in increase participant participation yes it is participants who understand what it's like to play and who are mostly most likely to watch others in the same sport and Mukul texts in I was a mad sports fan all my younger life cricket hockey tennis union AFL etc after the first scandal about bribery broke in the mid 90s Mark War and Shane Warne found taking bribes it was like a switch and overnight I lost all interest in sports since then I watch occasionally out of boredom but otherwise lost all interest Suzanne's called in from Packenham Upper in Melbourne. Suzanne, you, you are interested in quite a niche sport. Tell us about that. Yes, it's, um, well, it's a whole sport and it's called equine vaulting. Um, so in the 1930s, it was included in the Olympics as um, 
artistic writing. So basically you've got three elements and so th three things that can go wrong. You've got the lunger who has a horse on a lead, a long lead. So the horse is circling a 20 metre circle. Um, and you've got the vaulter who is like um, an athlete, gymnast, dancer who um, vaults onto the horse and then performs uh, to music. So you've got all these elements. You've got costumes. It's quite theatrical. Um, you've got music. You've got the horse and you've got the lunger. So, I mean... Things can go wrong with a horse. The vaulter can potentially, they tend to jump off if they feel unbalanced, but you have to be incredibly fit as a vaulter to actually perform these um, moves on a horse. Um, they, they do backflips off the horse. Um, they do leaps. Um, they do kind of backward um, walkovers on a horse. So it's, it's kind of amazing because you've got all these elements. You've got the dance, yeah. you've got the gymnastics, you've got music. And it all happens in a couple of minutes. So it can be performed as an individual. You can do a part of deux and also team. So it sounds I was a lot, um, Suzanne, like, like the circus, you know. It's got that sense is, of excitement yes. and danger. Yes, it has that. And the sport, in, it actually was um, developed by the Roman um, soldiers who used vaulting to keep fit in between um, campaigns. So you could vault on and off a horse if your horse was killed um, and so a lot of it's come through, like dressage was also used for um, warfare. So it's interesting how it's, it's evolved. It's very small in this country, but it's huge in Germany, France and the States. Yes. Well, and what drew you to it, Suzanne, originally? Well, you know, my daughter um, <laughs> became involved. We saw it at Equitana and then she did, you know, if it said, where can we do this? We did a workshop and then that was it. I was kind of drawn into this vortex <laughs> so I learned how to coach and um, we went overseas twice. She represented her country as part of a team. And so we had incredible experiences working with the top coaches in the field. So because our season is um, reverse, so all the European coaches love coming here in our summer. So we worked with, I mean, how many sports do you get to work with the top coaches? And... Um, those who train the horses and those who train the athletes. So yeah. all so that it was an like, incredible experience. Yeah, there's there's the excitement and the the skill and athleticism and yeah, those opportunities as well. Suzanne, that's a real window into something a lot of us wouldn't know much about. Thank you so much for telling us about that. Pleasure. Uh, Elizabeth has also called in from Redfern. Elizabeth, what's your attitude to sport? Is there something that's uh, that's really uh, uh, switched you on as a, a viewer? Um. I love sport, but I love playing sport, um, and I don't mind watching some sport, but um, the only game that I ever care about the outcome of is a game that I'm playing, basically. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so does that mean that you used to watch and think, oh, whatever, I don't care, but, but once you started playing, your, your thoughts changed on, on watching the sports? Uh, no, they stay the same. Yeah. So I never actually, I never played cricket. I only ever played um, soccer. Um, wog ball and I only started playing that like in I think I started when I was 32 but I grew up with cricket um, which was kind of unusual because our family is Portuguese and traditionally I guess most ethnic families would have been watching soccer but we never did and I've got two brothers and they used to, they were into it and I wasn't that into it like it was just in the background and I always watched it 
um, but again, didn't care. But it was just like now when I think about it, it's I have really nostalgic memories of it. And when summer comes, it's it's part of summer and it's something that's always in the background. I love Richard Benno or I did. Yeah. <laughs> just see his voice. So soothing. Um, yeah, but yeah. my brothers also used to force me to play, not force me, I mean, I was happy to do it, but um, play backyard cricket, but they would insist on playing with a real ball, <laughs> like oh a real my. cricket ball. Ooh. And I was like, can't we just use a tennis ball? And I'm not, it's going to be authentic. And so I was petrified. I was like as young as I think eight or something, and we'd be playing with a real cricket ball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot that goes into those childhood experiences, Elizabeth. Thank you for that call. Warwick's called in from Tasmania. Uh, Warwick, what's your view? Um, I have just a, a different aspect in relation to my um, interest in sport um, because I basically had a father who was a very successful sportsman um, and basically um, at the age of 10 uh, I was um, involved in going and basically going to the uh, as a little bit later in my life going overseas and then to Olympic Games and watching my father compete and be successful at the Olympic Games. And I just wanted to say how it actually has a different, quite an effect on a family that people don't actually talk about. They talk about the sportsmen themselves and how successful they are. They don't actually talk about how sport does affect, enormous effect on families. And so, Warwick, how has that shaped your view of sports to participate in or to be a fan of later in life? Um, mainly, it, it's actually put me off sport, to tell you the truth. Um, and I am not very happy with what's happening here in Tasmania. The Liberal government are spending $600 million on a sports arena, which I think is a complete waste of money. I'm really intrigued by, by your view, Warwick. Is, is it, was it because you saw the impacts of that success and that commitment to the sport on your family dynamic that, that was the issue? Or, or you feel that sport itself has negative impacts for its participants? I, th I think it, it certainly affected my family, most certainly. Um, but I have heard of many other people, uh, other families that have been affected by sports, successful sports people. Yes, my word. Yeah, it's, it's something, as you say, that most of us haven't considered. Warwick, thanks for your call. No worries. Thank you. You know, judging by the text and the Facebook page, there are there's a sizable proportion of our audience who are not that interested in sport. But I find it really fascinating why that is. You know, some of those early experiences that put people off sport and could just as easily switch people on to sport. And I'd be very interested to hear if there's been a moment like that for you, whether that was early in your life or later, where you suddenly realised that you were very interested in a particular uh, code or type of sport. Uh, and you'd like to share that process with us. What was it that, that drew you in? Our guest today, uh, Bharat Sundaresan, who's a journalist at CrickBuzz, a commentator at SEN and an author, and Associate Professor Adam Karg, who's sport with the Sport Innovation Research Group at Swinburne University of Technology, looking at sports marketing and fan culture, uh, which is, I guess, really the heart of what we're talking about today. Adam, we mentioned before those uh, that rash of documentaries that are out at the moment. There's Breakpoint about the tennis, there's the test about the cricket, uh, there's uh, Drive to Survive, which has apparently been huge in bringing people to Formula One. What's going on there? Why are they so compelling when, you know, the, 
the sports themselves have been around on the telly for years. Yeah, and I think now, particularly with the transition to a lot of people using streaming services, there is now really an infinite amount of content that can be placed on those. So obviously those sort of providers are looking to resource and generate and um, and bring to audiences this, this sort of content. It's important to note as well, this content is generally relatively cost-effective to produce. So the, I always say the sets and the costumes are largely there when we're making documentaries <laughs> yeah. about sports. So that's not the case for drama and other, other sort of big big budget feature um, productions or, or, or television drama series, for example. So I think these are, we'd be honest, quite cost-effective to make. They're, they're clearly popular. I think the Drive to Survive is probably the optimum case that we look at over the last couple of years. So it's the case of a Formula One documentary which transitions a season and it shows um, the athletes and the teams and all the behind-the-scenes things that you, you sort of expect to see there. Well, and people are already famous. Like, the characters are already well-known. So a- Absolutely. And even the, the celebrities that move around in those circles and that we can we can imagine as well. But this is probably one of the things with, with sport and, and measuring the impact of these sorts of things is it's been difficult previously because we've been on all, all sorts of different platforms. The last couple of years, we have actually been able to say, okay, who are the people who are watching this documentary series, what were they watching before and what are they watching now? So for the first time, we've actually got tangible evidence that it's having a positive impact on people's likelihood or their behaviours in watching that sport in the case of Formula One. Okay, so, so they're using the algorithms to work out what we've been Correct, correct. And particularly, there are, there's some studies in, in North America, particularly so far, um, that have shown a tangible link between those who watched Draft to Survive, weren't watching Formula One before and are now watching that. On, on various platforms. So the ability to bring that together actually presents quite a positive case for those who are who are sort of in charge of these documentaries. But that's been one now, particularly North America has been the case where huge numbers watching the documentary series. We'll see from this year, three of the Formula One races will be in the US. So Miami, Austin, and from this year, Las Vegas will all host races. So enormous growth in interest in a really important commercial market for sport. Um, so that's been a, a really big piece to that. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because uh, I remember Lewis Hamilton was asked years ago, what would it take to get Americans interested in Formula One? He was like, I don't know, put a car in in front of them, it's the noise, the atmosphere. But that didn't work. Like it took a reality TV show. Yeah, and the other answer to that would have been having you know American drivers, which have never really we haven't had for a while a really um, successful or very popular um, North American driver in, in in Formula One as well. And I think at the same time we've seen it in the Australian sports setting as well. So what, what's notable about these documentaries is they're often focused on 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 obviously a sport but a particular aspect so even in in Australia we've seen a documentary series on the Australian Football League trade um, period so the off-season period for a sport like that um, you know we've seen lots of examples even the, the last dance was a really popular one with which chronicled Michael Jordan's um, last season and that came out um, probably conveniently over the COVID time where a lot of people had time to watch a series like that but that was incredibly popular as well this isn't new I mean the NFL's had a hard knock series for, for more than two decades but I think in the last couple of years we've clearly seen incredible growth and we are now starting to understand the sort of storytelling the sort of recipes in that programming that does give those audiences the biggest chance of converting to the sport which is ultimately one of the reasons why you know collectively sports and media organizations are bringing these to audiences. I love too how we had Ted Lasso you know set within a soccer team so it's you know it's it's almost this meta narrative about how much we all watch sports docos now and sports. Mm -hmm you know, reality shows. Uh, Barat Sundaresan, have you been watching any of these documentaries and, you know, veering into non-cricket sports for a while? No, I did watch, uh, I started watching uh, Breakpoint and I've always watched tennis. Uh, growing up, uh, we were fortunate enough in India, cable television came through in the 90s, so we got to see at least all the all the Grand Slams. 
but uh, I mean, what? And I, I completely agree with Adam as well. I mean, it's about getting people to root for someone you have no connection with, even if you're not interested in sport. I think it happens with. Uh, what we watch on television as well, or like TV shows as well, at any given point, even with movies, you are at some point, whether it's a romantic movie, you're rooting for someone to fall in love, or if it's a crime drama, you're rooting for either the villain or the hero or the, or the cop or whatever's involved. And similarly, if you can drive that connections, what these documentaries do very smartly as well, is kind of get people, because they take them behind the scenes. So even for my my wife, for example, I, I, I made her, I forced her to watch a Breakpoint with me. <laughs> and even though she knew nothing about Nick Kyrgios, uh, after a point she was intrigued. Uh, she wanted to know why, you know, uh, he, he gets angry like everybody else, but why is he the bad boy of tennis? Like, what's what's the rationale behind that? It, does it say a lot about him or does it say more about Australian audiences? I mean, the test is another classic example. I mean, uh, the first season gets made right after Sandpaper Gate, uh, where, you know, Australia felt like it had been embarrassed on the world stage as a country. And that led to the, the bans to Steve Smith and David Warner. So that was... Uh, about Justin Langer taking over the, this great hero, Justin Langer taking over this team and kind of making this team lovable again for the Australian audience. The test number two happens in the wake of Justin Langer's uh, dramatic departure from uh, the team as coach. And the focus is immediately shifted to players and humanizing them, taking them, I mean, seeing Pat Cummins as a father, uh, Usman Khawaja talking about his race and ethnicity. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's very smartly done as well. You know what kind of audience you're tapping into. And with the Formula One, I mean, if you just think about it, Hillary, uh, if you're not into it, uh, you just think this is a bunch of rich people driving their fancy cars, which I can't even get into, mm -hmm. for thousands of kilo hundreds of kilometers. Whereas I'm going to an OTR and filling up fuel for some very expensive uh, prices. So what's my connection? Why should I be rooting for them? But once I know the people behind the wheel, in a way... Uh, I have I have a connection. Maybe I don't want them to win, or maybe I want them to win, and, and that's that's been uh, interesting how it is tackled across all sports. At somewhere, it's the same. Yep, the heroes and the villains. We're getting some really interesting texts from people, you know, who with very different experiences of sport. Uh, we'll take a couple of calls in a moment, but I want to quickly read this uh, text. In my early 20s, I started a five-a-side soccer team with a group of friends. None of us had played much soccer. We were all musicians, but we were amazed at how much fun it was. There was something about running around and getting sweaty and working in a team that was very bonding. And I just want to take a step out from this text to go, I did that too, and I was also shocked. Oh, my God. Team sports, they're really fun. But my early experiences had not shown me that. So the text continues. We all came off the field with hearts racing and hearts for eyes. Would always end the night with a trip to the pub too. It's been 10 years and the team is still going and we've made new friends through it too. It's the best. I want to come back to that uh, idea that some of us were robbed of those experiences in early life and, and only had to discover them later in a while. But Frida's on the line from Thornbury in Melbourne. Frida, you're really into footy. How did that come to pass? Yeah, hi. Um, yeah, I grew up in a very sporty household, but I never really showed much of an interest in it. But I remember when I was in primary school, I had quite a um, oh, loud personality. And I was in this class one year where the teacher and all the boys were always talking about footy and I could never participate. So I went home one night and I said, like, Dad, I want you to take me to the footy with you this weekend. Um, and he did. And I fell in love with it after that and ended up going every weekend. And I remember every Monday I'd go back to school and I'd be, you know, 
discussing the game with the teacher and we'd be reviewing who'd done an injury and whatnot. And yeah, I think I just loved the the solidarity where you might not have much of a connection to the people following the game, but when you're there at the game, you all just have one um, like goal and yeah. And it's, as you say, it's such an in into social connection, isn't it, across a whole range of contexts? And I can see Adam Carg nodding, yes. And I think that's yeah. that's the case for a lot of people who are texting in as well. Um, was is that something that's made it uh, m- even more of a draw card over the years for you, Frida? Or is for you, is it more about the actual game itself? Um, I think it's both, and I think as well, living in Melbourne, with there's such a culture of it. The um, yep. yeah, the MCGs are pretty, like yeah, pretty. Uh, sacred place, but and a unit the game, of measurement. <laughs> People keep definitely. talking about how many MCGs it takes to fill things. Yeah, yeah. So I remember I was at the grand final in 2018, and I'd never seen 100,000 people in one place before. Um, but it's also the game as well, and I think footy is great because you have lots of goals being scored, but you've also got high marks, and yeah. And Fred, I mean, as a woman, was there a sense for you that it was harder to get into that? I mean, that, that's certainly something I felt as a young person, but I'm hoping that that has changed. Yeah, I definitely felt that. And I think in recent years, I sort of um, stopped following it as heavily for that reason. But I do remember when I was younger, I always looked up to people like Sam Lane and I used to want to have her job because I saw she was this woman in like a male dominated world who loved footy just as much as I did. And she sort of looked like me. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Frida, thanks so much for calling in. Thank you so much. I'm really loving hearing about the the switch that flicked for you and, and made you go, that's a sport for me. I love that. And also how you might sell your chosen sport to a non-fan. How would you convert someone, for example? who has had very little experience of enjoying sport. It's more been something that, you know, we were forced to do at school, wasn't happy with my body, so I didn't like using it, had not had a fun experience of team sport. There was just that horrible thing where people used to throw a ball at you and you had to get out of the way. No, that's horrible. Tell me what it is about your sport that you love and you think I might love too. Robin's called in from Albury. Hi, Robin. Hi, Hilary. Happy New Year. You too. <laughs> And happy Lunar New Year as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, I actually wanted to um, describe, as I said to the producer, so my dad trained athletes and actually he was Melinda Gaines for Taylor's first little ass coach. Um, And then I had the chance to actually, I met Melinda when I I worked as a senior media officer with the Australian Olympic team in Sydney and in Athens. But um, from a very early age, I was carted, dad played tennis as well, so I carted off to him with tennis when I was little and then we had spent time on athletic tracks and dad actually started a sporting team out at Miller in Green Valley. So this is back in the early 60s because there was nothing for kids to do. So if there was enough kids to make a netball team, which was like we were all old enough to play netball and mum coached the netball team. Um, So sports always been there. I played tennis um, like through my teen years and also to before I went back to work full time, which is quite a while ago now and still enjoy a social game of tennis. But I also wanted to talk about really quickly that whole idea that somebody that's interested in sports 
isn't interested in arts and that's why it was great to hear the story about the team that were musicians who started yeah. to play soccer um, because I always get this response of you know because I now I mean I've worked in the arts now for a long time and I'm also a creative writer and people go like oh you know sport and I go but no you know I'm a hybrid <laughs> enjoy that and uh, um, so you know my preference is actually to get back onto the tennis court I'm hoping to do that again lately but you know I'm I'm glued when it's the Australian Open um, but I love watching all sports at not just an elite level but also having uh, a son that played regional hockey he just tried everything so he tried league and then um, soccer and living in Albury it's much very much like an AFL sort of area which I've not really taken to even though I've lived on the closer to Melbourne now for quite a bit of my life so just that idea that to be a sporting person doesn't mean that you cut off other parts of, of what you do or, or who you are. Yeah, that's a lot of uh, sport is a bit like a dance, isn't it? Once you start to see the skill, it's amazing. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I think that was one of the things of working with the team in Athens, Sydney and Athens where you are literally at close quarters with people. And, and I know some people say with sport, you know, people are overpaid or this or that, but that dedication, and I think they do lift you know, they can lift us in particular ways to, um, yeah, during, you know, tough times or when you see people excelling at a particular level. I think it actually adds, it actually helps to make you try to excel in whatever you are trying to do. That's a really interesting perspective, Robin. Thank you. Welcome. Yeah, it's a, it plays interestingly into this next text too. As my career in theatre meant we performed on Saturday afternoons, which was when most sports used to be played, I developed no interest in any sport until now. My granddaughter plays tennis now and we've been enthralled and amazed at the skill, loving the tennis. When Robin was talking about watching her kids play sport, I thought that has actually been a big thing for me, watching the joy that they get out of uh, different team sports and watching them just enjoy moving their bodies around. Uh, I again feel a little bit resentful about my early childhood experiences with sport. Um, Adam Carg, you mentioned before the the hedonist the hedonic connection that we can experience with sport, and that being a, a factor that helps connect us. If we don't have that in childhood, if school sport and PE was a horrible experience, can that hit later in life? It can, and I think it's important here to separate probably the the playing of sport and the watching or consumption of They're sport linked, as, though, as aren't a media. They, they I mean, are you absolutely. Know, if you linked, hated yeah. it and it, it has a horrible, shameful feeling in your body, you're not going to want to watch it other people. Doing absolutely, it I think when, when we think about the hedonic and the pleasure seeking aspect, we probably talk more about the the watching of sport and the, the group identification that that comes with that. If we think about the participation side, uh, absolutely, and I think it's there's there's wonderful lessons that can come from sport in terms of of leadership and teamwork and and skill building and those sorts of aspects. Um, but likewise, I think it's the, the social connection and, and it's the having fun. And, and I think more now than ever, sports are looking to create, obviously, their traditional experiences, but also alternate experiences to either keep people in sport or re-engage people into sport. So whether it's modified forms of sport, um, whether it's got more of a cardio aspect to it or more of a skill aspect, whether it's uh, you know reduced speed to the game or a reduced length of the game that removes barriers, that's really the focus of, of sport organisations and what we call their development programs is, is building um, building 
building um, competitions and building um, products that, that can enable people to say, look, I can do that. That removes the barriers that stopped me participating or allows me to, to reset or try something different. So I always sort of think about new sports that are coming into the market. And there's a sport at the moment, which maybe some of your listeners have heard of called pickleball, Yes, um, which is enormous in the in the US and I think will be enormous here as well. I, I drove past one of my local parks the other day and they've, as part of the new playground, have installed a pickleball court. And, and we went and had a look and the first questions were kind of, what what is this? And, and you look very quickly and you realise what it is and that there are now professional leagues that Australians are going to go and play and in, in North America and the like as well. But you think about some of the barriers that that removes. So tennis is a, a sport very much about speed and about you know hitting the ball as fast as you can. Pickleball is a sport that, that really becomes much more accessible. It's about slowing the ball down, slowing the game down, movement positioning. So it enables, um, sort of removes some of the barriers there to have you know older generations and younger generations playing the same game competitively. So I think you know you think about the way that new sports will become popular. It's about removing barriers and putting that fun aspect back into sport. Ideally, and for me, growing up, sport was that. It was fun. I loved to do. It. I played every sport I could. I took every opportunity I could. Um, but for those who didn't, you know, can we re-engage? Can we can we find either a new sport or a new version? version of the same sport that looks a little bit different that can re-engage them and, and hopefully that's everyone's experience. Well and Barat Sundaresan I, I remember you talking before about growing up with your father watching cricket, your brothers watching cricket, everybody watching cricket but if you're a girl you know that that can be quite a different experience. How much do you think that is changing with you know things like the AFLW and you know watching a bit more women's cricket on the telly finally you can actually see it on the telly these days. Do you think that girls growing up these days are equally able to see themselves kind of in that uh, in in that playing mode and therefore more interested in being a spectator as well. Oh, absolutely! And you just have to see the success of the Australian women's cricket team, uh, Hillary. I mean, they they are as dominant as uh, any era of uh, Australian men's cricket. Uh, you know, the Steve Waugh era or the or the one after that. Uh, where they won everything, and that's that's in in some aspects they are even more indomitable than that era, uh, and that has brought up so many more female fans to to cricket, and a lot of young girls and young boys getting inspired by what the likes of Alicia Healy and Elise Perry have done. The WBBL has been a huge success, just like AFLW, uh, and it's not just bringing in. Uh, kids who always wanted to play sport. You're seeing people from other professions. I've seen uh, read stories of uh, women who play in the AFLW or the NRLW who come from other aspects of life. I mean, they all have a day job, but they then for that part of the season, they're playing that sport at the highest level. And, and you, you know, the, it is a cliche, but you can, uh, you can only be what you see, right? And, and I think when it comes to that barrier, it also should include uh, immigrants, right? Like a lot of South Asians who come to this part of the world start playing cricket because that's their identity. But they've not had enough of their own play at the highest level. Usman Khawaja is the only test cricketer of note who's you know been around for a while. So I think that that's where sport plays a big role, whether it's in terms of gender uh, or race or ethnicity, where uh, especially in this multicultural world that we live in, um, you you kind of are, are able to create your own identity, and then then you know it it can, then gives you your confidence to just become a part of a bigger, greater part of society. Uh, and true, I mean, and, and the women's sport. I mean, the WIPL, uh, which just sold its broadcast rights two weeks ago for a huge sum, where each game is going to uh, you know be sold at or played for 1.5 million dollars, and and so that's going to be a huge game changer as well in cricket but in women's sport overall.
It's really interesting seeing Usman Khawaja talking about his early childhood complete non-interest in cricket and basically saying, I think the quote was, when I looked at the TV, I saw these really brash, really stubborn, beer-drinking white Australians that were the same kind of guys racially vilifying me while I was playing cricket. And that really affected his ability to engage, didn't it? What can we do about that? I think uh, you just need to... Uh, kind of tap into the grassroots more because I do some junior umpiring here in Adelaide when I'm not covering cricket. Yeah, I can't get enough cricket in my life, can I? <laughs> uh, and I see so many South Asian kids uh, or kids of South, South Asian origin do really, really well till a certain level, but then you start losing out on them for a variety of reasons. And some of them have to do with what Usman Khawaja said. Of course, Australia has changed uh, in the last 20, 25 years since he was growing up here in the 90s. Uh, But you just need more of them, uh, or more of us, sort of, coming through. Uh, But also for a lot of those barriers, because a lot of, I mean, it's not often not about the kids, it's about the parents. Where I've seen um, in these junior games, the parents feel a little... Uh, because they might not be, uh, they might not be born here. They might not feel as Australian as they say, as uh, the kids born here. So they feel a little left out in many ways. So I think Cricket Australia, in particular, is working a lot. Uh, I mean, they've had some discussions with the likes of me as well as to what they should be doing. And I always say, just, just you know. Um, connect with these people more, understand. And there needs to be an understanding of culture as well. I mean, if you see that uh, a, a South Asian man, for example, is a little shy of speaking in, in a room full of, uh, you know, the kind of people that Usman Khawaja described, um, you kind of reach out to them, understand where they're coming from. And I think that that will happen. And, and that's, again, something that can happen in a team environment. Right? You spoke about sharing a dressing room. You suddenly... Um, are breaking down those barriers. You're sitting down after a win or a game. Like you see when the Australians celebrate now and they with the bottle of champagne, they wait for Usman Khawaja to leave after they do that. And I think that in itself, it's a little step, but it's a sign that things are are moving forward where uh, it's becoming more inclusive. There's one thing just talking about inclusion, but I think these aspects really matter. Yeah, I did see some commentary saying, I think that's the, the base level there that you don't spray your Muslim teammate with alcohol, but good, baby steps, baby steps. <laughs> Let's take a couple more quick calls before we wrap up this talk back for today on Life Matters. Rebecca's in Sydney. Rebecca, test cricket. Uh, later in life. How did that happen? Well, I was um, minding my sister's dog when she went away with her partner for a week week, and um, I was in an area I didn't know and I noticed the test cricket had summer of war was Steve Waugh's last summer and I realised I used to watch him when he started out as a young fellow running on um, and I have seven nephews and a lot of them are good cricketers and my parents love the test cricket so... I uh, just started watching again, and uh, I love that era with all those guys. And I've been following Test cricket ever since. Fantastic! So it's it's you know it's part of your history as well as the the thrill of the game in the moment. Well, that's right. And we used to play in the backyard. I'm one of six kids, so well, we, and we always had friends around and so on. We had a big backyard for playing cricket, and um, I always loved to play as a kid. But as girls in my generation, we weren't necessarily encouraged that we would ever be able to play cricket as well. Like we were all netball players, all the girls in my family on a Saturday. But um, yeah, my brother was quite good at cricket and he taught us and uh, we had a lot of fun. And we used to say drinks, drinks here at the Sydney Cricket Ground and pretend we were 
you know, heading off as we headed off for our green cordial. So, <laughs> green cordial, um, yeah. A lot of good memories, but it also attaches me to the family. And mum and dad even bought me last Christmas, uh, the one before last, a uh, cricket bat to play in the lounge room because I like to stand there and pretend I'm batting when they are because physically I can't do those things anymore. Oh, that's great. Rebecca, At least thank I can you. follow on. Yeah, that's a lovely call to to start winding up with. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for the program. It's fabulous. Oh, it's a pleasure. This text too, very, very pertinent. Talking about sport and its pleasures and challenges is also a great way to connect with teenagers, in particular boys who can't believe a middle-aged English history uh, teacher, I think, has any interest beyond the classroom. Starting a lesson with a short conversation about the latest soccer or footy results is not a bad way to start a lesson. Uh, Deb's in Warrandyte. Hello to you, Deb. Yeah, hi. What are you starting to learn now? Uh, I'm about to start to learn surfing. And how old are you? Uh, I'm about to turn 66. Congratulations. Happy birthday. That's fantastic. (laughs) Thanks. What brought that on? Well, um, look, I've I've been spending some time down at Lawn and I've been watching people surfing and, uh, you know, then I watch the things on the telly, like all those incredible, unbelievable mountain high waves and people surfing. I don't plan to be doing that, but Jesus, moving. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, it, what, what was the moment where you went? Actually, I could do that. Well, I, uh, <laughs> Hillary, I still don't know if I can do that. But, um, <laughs> I could try that uh, then. Yeah, I'll try that. But uh, uh, I met a, a woman down at, at Lawn who surfs, and I said, "Would she teach me?" So she she's going to teach me and. Uh, yeah, so that it's going to be something. It's going to be something else. Yes, it is. Whatever, however it turns out, it'll be amazing. Deb, thanks so much for calling in. Yeah, pleasure, pleasure. I myself have just taken to doing a tiny bit of stand-up paddleboarding when the opportunity uh, provides itself, which it's a shock to the system, but very, very lovely. A couple more texts. Little athletics is about fun and fitness in a family-friendly environment. Participation can lead to competition if that is what the child wants. And uh, Greg in South Hobart says, sport, humanity reaching for perfection in the physical realm. What is there not to like? Don't judge it by the poor behaviour of certain individuals. It would be interesting to do a story exploring why some people are so prejudiced against it. It really would, Greg. That's one for the future. Thank you. Um, Adam Carr, just as we finish up, is sport essential? I mean, I know this is a kind of uh, a crazy thing to say in Australia, but there are a lot of people who just don't give a rats about sport as well as all the people who love it. Should we care about a bunch of people running around chasing a ball? Yes. <laughs> yes, Why? we should look. I th- yeah, no, and I think it's. Um, I think we'd be missing out on a lot if it was removed from 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 life. To be honest, I think from uh, the 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 health and the social and the economic benefits. Well, playing, but spectating. Spectating, yeah, being fans. Do we yeah. need to be a fan? Well, absolutely. I think. It, I mean, it's providing us all sorts of. We've heard, you know, today from a number of, of social connections with family. Um, we haven't talked so much about the the group identification that comes with being, you know, around a group of people. So the national pride that we have from watching Australia at a World Cup or the Olympics. Um, find me a workplace that isn't dominated by conversations about that and bringing people together around those topics at those times. I think you'd be hard pressed. Um, and, and I think even from the professional sport teams that that we follow, I think there's there's enormous 
benefits there in in connecting with people. There's some great stories. We do a lot of work with um with season ticket holders and, and members of, of professional sport teams. And once they get to 10, 20, 30 year members, they are completely rusted on and supporting the club. But they've also found fantastic lifelong connections among individuals. They've connected across gender, across cultural barriers, across age barriers, all those sorts of things. There's some of the things socially that sport offers us around those points of connection. There's huge economic benefits. That's a separate discussion. There's huge health, learning and education benefits. I talked about sort of educating and using it as a touch point for students. I learned European geography from watching soccer as a five to 15 year old. Like yeah. that. that is my knowledge of European capital cities was from that. So I think a huge range of benefits there that, that we'd be missing out on a lot if sport wasn't part of our life. Yep. A lot of volunteering, you're right, goes on around sports and connection. Look, as you say, there's so much more we could be discussing, but we're out of time for today. Thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, Associate Professor Adam Karg, Dr. Adam Karg, and Barat, Barat Sundaresan. Sorry, Barat, I've messed it up twice. <laughs> no, that's right. Thanks so much for Thank, your time. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Life Matters. Uh, Bharat Sundaresan is a journalist. You can find him on SEN and Crick Buzz. Dr. Adam Karg's an associate professor studying sports, marketing and fan culture at Swinburne University. It was a really interesting range of texts today on this topic. Uh, Red Door Books of Lansfield on Facebook says, My dad got me into my favourite sport, lacrosse, but I don't expect I'll ever see it promoted or telecast on free-to-air telly. Libby, driving into Geelong, says, Being a fan is so important. I remember the first broadcast on the ABC when Football Australian Rules came back during COVID. I nearly cried because I'd missed it so much. Might not be for everyone, but it's great for lots and lots of people. Jan in Preston in Melbourne says, I wasn't good at sports at school and I suffered much rejection and mockery. This turned me off sport forever, though I danced from an early age and still love this. I think far too much money and adoration is directed at sports heroes and Paula says the gender thing has coloured my view I enjoy watching some sport and I'm physically fit however I really dislike the gang mentality of sport my father watched and listened to every sport I hated it we enrolled our child in lots of team sports none worked it wasn't until we visited friends who had mountain bikes unused in the shed and our child never looked back there is too much emphasis says Paula on the team I'm more inclined to physical activity though as we heard on on the text line during the program, there are a lot of people who love the team aspect and were stunned to see how bonding and lovely it could be to be part of a team. Up next, art that forges lifelong connections, a story about a precious object that kind of survived a disaster here on RN. I've never been on a date before. I've always wanted a relationship. From the creators of Love on the Spectrum, meet some love bugs who found the search for true love almost impossible. <laughs> but they're filled with hope. I want someone smoking hot. I'm hoping it'll lead to something amazing. Fall in love all over again. I'll remember this forever. Better date than never. Starts Tuesday, January 24 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Julie Faulkner's a big fan of art, music and nature. And you'll hear these things come together in a tragic and beautiful way in this story for Life in 500 Words about a precious object and an enduring friendship. Here's Julie. My artistic friend, Cecily, once drew a compelling portrait of Ma Rainey and charcoal. We were young when I first saw it, and I immediately asked her if I could have it. It leapt from the paper with bold, confident strokes, a beaming African-American woman 
who looked as if she could take you to her ample bosom at any moment. Cess told us below that Gertrude Ma Rainey was the first great classic blues singer, possibly the greatest, with the exception of her student, Bessie Smith. The frame drawing occupied a large blank wall of my crumbling rented house on the mountain. I loved it, not only because of its deftness and character, but also because it epitomised my friend's capacity for expanding our youthful, limited lives. Cess was a ferocious reader and free-spirited artist whose energy always suggested beguiling worlds beyond our own. She had moved to London and married another artist. I had moved to the country where I took up my first real job. Then came Ash Wednesday, no warning. We fled in cars, crawled over the summit while gums burst into flame all around us. Planes dropped fire retardant over the mountain, controlling the fiery spread and probably saving our lives. I lost everything I owned that hot night except the shorts, thongs and grungy t-shirt I was standing up in. I had to keep in mind that these were just things and things like my treasured portrait can become lost, damaged and destroyed. If you don't get attached to things, you don't get devastated when they're gone, I tried to tell myself. Pre-digital photos couldn't be replaced, but Fletcher Jones offered all fire victims a kilt, so I had something woolen to wear with my T-shirt in the summer heat. Friends and family wrote out favourite recipes, gave me books, organised practical replacements. When I visited my ageing neighbours, I told myself that I was the lucky one. Their house and possessions were intact, but their beloved garden was now a charred wasteland leaving them inside, staring at daytime television. I returned to the city and life continued. I still missed the mountain and made an annual pilgrimage during the breathtaking autumns. I tried to avoid the unsympathetic new house now looming over the slope where immense rhododendron bushes and chestnut trees grew. A tennis court now occupied the overgrown croquet lawn my ramshackle home, reduced to a pile of bricks, had once been the governor's summer residence. Unexpectedly, Cess contacted me. She had returned briefly to her Sydney home to clean up after renters had left it in a mess. She had rummaged through cartons of stuff to sort out past decades of her life. In a box of old slides, she had found one of the original Ma Rainey drawing would I like it blown up and printed? After nearly 40 years, Ma is back on my wall, looking again as though she is about to burst into song. And behind Ma's wide smile lies Cess's precious gift of friendship. Julie Faulkner with her story for Life in 500 Words. And thanks to sound engineer Kerry Dell for her work on that. That's it for us for now, but there's plenty more where that came from. You can always look up episodes you missed on the app or on our website. Lots of extra info there too. And our next program has friendship at its core, a lovely reconnection between two older men who found not only that they had hidden talents they could nurture, but also that those talents complemented each other perfectly. Harry and Keith will join us for that chat on Life Matters next time. I'll catch you then. 
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.